Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Nikoroi Hawkins. Coming up... As many of you women as possible who have been thinking about getting into politics, try and get in this year. Addressing gender disparity in climate change with some of the Pacific themes for International Women's Day this year. And we continue our Talano series on Australia and New Zealand spy operations in the Pacific. We need to identify the different sort of information that is available and is accessed through this alert spine. International Women's Day this week saw women's rights take centre stage across the Pacific. The focus this year was on addressing climate justice and gender disparity, with calls for more women to become members of parliament. RNZ Pacific's Elisha Foon has more. The first female Prime Minister of Samoa wants to remind everyone that gender equality is a shared responsibility. Fiami Naomi Mata'afa gave an opening address at Samoa's International Women's Day, saying it is a day to reflect on the resilience and determination of women to overcome the challenges they face. She says people must say no to stereotypes and discrimination. The commemoration every year is a call for women's voices to be heard, women's rights to be recognised, women's protection from all forms of violence to be prioritised, women's capacities and abilities to be realized and utilized, and for all women to be afforded all opportunities for their inclusion in all aspects of life. Fiame Naomi Mata'afa says the day was born from an outcry of women against inequality with limited or no voting rights. Fiji's Minister for Women, Rosie Akbar, echoed her sentiments, saying Fiji is also joining the global movement to end gender disparity. The International Women's Day calls on all of us to support women's productive and unpaid care and domestic work, which is exacerbated by a climate change crisis and the COVID-19. Addressing the needs of our women is a priority goal of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Fiji has come a long way in terms of laying a solid platform for gender equality in the form of our constitutional provisions for equality, non-discrimination, and our Bill of Rights, which now for the first time includes socio-economic rights. It is thus very important that we are inclusive because we are building our democracy and we wanted all women, all voices to be represented in the parliament and in the political sphere. Fiji Paramount Chief and MP Rotsi Mumukipa, in her reflections on International Women's Day this week, urged more women to consider entering politics. We are 50% of the total population of uh, Fiji, that is women. And in uh, parliament, we are 18%. And here in my own party, Sodelpa, we are 19%. So we are a very much a minority group. So I would like to encourage uh, as many of you women as possible who have been thinking about uh, getting into politics to try and get in this year. Fittingly, this week also saw an historic moment marked for Fijian and Pacific women, with the country's first female deputy prosecutor being sworn in to the International Criminal Court. Nazat Shamim Khan, who was also president of the UN Human Rights Council, is the first female in the Asia-Pacific region to be appointed to the distinguished role.
We continue our Talanoa series on Australian and New Zealand spy operations in the Pacific this week with a statement from New Zealand Foreign Affairs Minister Naya Mahuta and some analysis from Papua New Guinean lawyer and academic Bao Kama. Yesterday, we heard a statement from Andrew Little, the Minister of New Zealand's Government Communications Security Bureau, the GCSB, with some analysis from Victoria University Professor of Comparative Politics, John Franco. If you would like to listen to that episode, head on over to our website, rnzi.com, and check out the Pacific Waves episode for the 9th of March. Just to put things in context, this is a continuation of our coverage last week of new information about Australian and New Zealand's Pacific spy operations, which came to light via a New Zealand military intelligence officer who spoke on the condition of anonymity with investigative journalist Nikki Haga. We start now with this narration of a written statement from New Zealand's Foreign Minister, Nanaya Mahuta, in response to the accusations. New Zealand's Pacific Resilience Approach recognises the Pacific as a highly complex environment. Geostrategic and security dynamics are determined by a range of socio-political, environmental, institutional and geopolitical drivers. Under this approach, we are continuously working to strengthen collaboration across government as we calibrate our long-term investments in the region. New Zealand government agencies are working together to deepen our Pacific relationships, expand our footprint and investments and build New Zealand's status as a trusted and influential partner. We are committed to partnering with Pacific countries and continue to invest in coordinated whole-of-government policy responses that furthers our interests in a peaceful, stable, prosperous and resilient Pacific. Joining me now is Papua New Guinean lawyer and academic Dr. Baal Kama, a visiting fellow at the Australian National University who specialises in Pacific affairs and legal systems. Welcome, Baal. What are your initial thoughts on the issues being raised here? Thank you. I think from the very start, we need to identify the different sort of information that is available and is accessed through this alert spine. And as you can see from the reports from government uh, during the 2014-15, when the first Snowden document came about uh, and the response from New Zealand and Australia and and those in the region, and then up till now with with Nikki's documents and the response that we saw from the New Zealand government, they're talking about sort of different information that has been gathered for different purposes. So when I'm looking at those sort of reports, I... uh, I sort of you know, come up with at least three sort of categories. The first category of information uh, that can be obtained through spying is, the, is what I would term as a civilian information. Uh, so those are information about you know, the affairs of the country, but also health and disaster and you know, information that one need to use to, for instance, counter crime, um, if there is you know, drug smuggling, human smuggling happening, this information that needs to be used to ensure that our law enforcement in the Pacific region who do not have high-tech equipment, at least their partners, Australia and New Zealand, can help them to actively kind of respond to you know, threats within, the, within their own country. And that obviously has also been you know, promoted through... Pacific Islands Forum, when it comes to security dialogue, they talk about using the partners and their technology to ensure that Pacific countries respond to criminal activities and other things that is 
you know, may be a threat to its own democracy. So that to the to the to the Pacific people, they see that civilian, say, um, civilian purpose of the spine or any sort of getting information uh, would be sort of help, helpful to their society. You will find that there is little sort of argument around it because it is what they would deem as a helpful thing for the society. Uh, now, then there's this second category of information that may be accessed, which we can, you know, categorize as a more strategic geopolitical interest or defense-related uh, sort of information, which Pacific countries doesn't necessarily want their partners, Australia and New Zealand, to have, but they want to have it because it is, gives them a geopolitical advantage. And so with current issues about China coming into the region and the sensitivity around that, accessing information to deal with that falls within the second category. Obviously, Pacific Islands, like I said, countries wouldn't want that to happen because they would want their dealings with China as a sovereign to sovereign nation to be, you know, confidential. And so any accessing of the information at that level obviously would be um, not something that the Pacific Island would want. But for the Australian, the New Zealand and its allies, obviously, those information assist with their geopolitical sort of interests. And that's the second category of um, information that can be accessed through that spine, which can be controversial. Pacific Island countries wouldn't want that to be out there, but obviously that can be accessed using the technology that they have. And then the third category uh, is where information that, and I would categorize them as bilateral advantage. It gives them, New Zealand, Australia, a bilateral advantage when it comes to negotiating and dealing with Pacific governments. And we have seen examples of that in the region. Um, in 2015, for instance, Radio New Zealand, in fact, reported on uh, Solomon Islands government officials being concerned that when they come to negotiations table with New Zealand government officials, it seems the New Zealand government officials already have word by word details of their discussions. And so they were being surprised in high-level government meetings that they were quite surprised that the New Zealand officials were, were quite uh, aware of um, inner discussions, which were deemed to be confidential. Um, and so Solomon Islands government official, for instance, in their New Zealand report, said that it seems like New Zealand had an upper end in the negotiation because they already have access to confidential information. Another example we have seen in this region is the ongoing case concerning um, East Timor, East Timor um, gas and oil negotiations with, with Australia. It's a court case that is currently going on in, in, in Australia where it was alleged that um, you know, spy agencies uh, tap into the negotiations room so that the other party, the Australian party, have that advantage when it comes to knowing what will be discussed. And so if I can just bring that point out um, before we sort of proceed is that there are these three different categories which I have put them together that those informations fall under. Now, the first category, as I said, is in Pacific's interest. So there will be, you will, you will find there is less sort of worry around that because Pacific want to protect themselves and that information gives the tool, I mean, gives them that information for the police and the defense force within the Pacific to sort of react um, to any sort of issues that will threaten them. But the third 
I mean, the second and third category, um, I find Korai is, is where there is that sensitivity around do Pacific want that? Do Pacific leaders in government want that? Uh, and if not, you know, um, how are they going to feel about it? Is it the right thing to do? Maybe before we go into like a, a bit deeper into it, maybe just looking at it from a cultural context, like there's a lot of foreign policy speak coming from Australia and New Zealand with the Pacific reset, with the, the refocus on the Pacific, that they are part of the Pacific family, that they've always been part of the Pacific family. They're there for us in terms of disaster. And I guess the thing that, that Haga is sort of pointing out to New Zealand people is that how can, how can these two policies coexist where you're a friend to the Pacific, but also a partner to the Five Eyes that needs to spy on them for, for those reasons. So, so that's, that's what Haga is saying to New Zealand people. But from a Pacific perspective, that trust of that friendship of being a family, how, I guess, how much of an offense is it culturally to Pacific people to have this kind of two-faced, I guess, two-faced sort of policy? From the, I mean, you know, there is a, there is a, there's a point what, what, noting there and i think uh, pacific leaders have have expressed that level of distrust they feel before when they first uh, i think that 2015 16 we have some pacific leaders um, expressing that a snowden document um, resulted in that sense of i mean they realized that there is the level of distrust that they thought they could trust the partners fully but it seems that um, you know according to them the partners has, have other agendas. And I think that's, a, that's also a fundamental reflection of the Pacific society. Uh, Pacific society is a very open society. You know, you can have uh, sort of conflict and tension with the people, but there's this idea of just expressing it out. If you, if you have information, if you, if you have that uh, sense of animosity or, or resentment, there's a, because the Pacific society comes from a more oral culture, in a way, embedded in people to kind of verbalize what is in them. And sooner or later, whatever secrets that they may have will sort of come out because they, they need to put it out. And, 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 and that's embedded in the Pacific people. I think the Western sort of thinking is that information is power. And so there is a measure on how much it can be put out and at what point it can be put out and how much can be tailored to well the power that is needed to sort of control the agenda, to sort of control the relationship, to bring to a certain sort of outcome. And we are looking at two different perspectives of what information is. One is more open. One is out there really building relationship. And so any ill feeling, any hidden information needs to be put out there in order to mend the relationship. Whereas on the other side, we have a idea of information that is information is power. And we can, how can we utilize it best to maximize that power that we have? And I think in the Pacific space, those, those two also, I mean, often sort of, you know, competing. And I think that is brought to the table when we talk about Pacific family and Pacific sort of reset, while Pacific may approach it as a familial thing, all in all, um, open, transparent. The way information is perceived here in Australia and New Zealand and the power of it may also affect how open they may be. And so I think that is, that is one sort of critical um, aspect of the relationship, the way the perception of information and the openness to it, to what end information can be used is perceived differently. 
I think the second thing that we can look into is that, and as you mentioned about the five eyes, um, Australia and New Zealand has a has that sort of broader responsibility. Um, and you know, um, we um, within the Pacific Pacific countries don't. Um, their relationship with the other bigger powers are mainly within the political, economic, and social kind of relationship. They don't have that sort of military, deeper military sort of um, in a relationship that demands of wielding information to some sort of self-gain or building that internal sort of advantage. Pacific countries don't have the, obviously because Pacific countries don't have the capacity to and also don't have the interest to. I mean, New Zealand and Australia are developed countries and so it is in their power to, I mean, in their interest to have a strong defense system and security infrastructure, whereas us in the Pacific don't have that. So I think those factors play into as well that irrespective of the fact that, you know, Pacific, I mean, New Zealand and Australia may, may have this family sort of idea within the relationship, the way that is defined and the, and the factors that affect it are quite different. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Look at you for that next time more.